doing before we talk is is, uh, is an opportunity or a share uh, section. So if anybody is struggling with something that they need a, a quick uh, plug to the network for, if they're looking for partners, deals, anything like that, that's a specific question that they want to put out to the fellow real estate investors here, please feel free to do so now. And we'll also have an opportunity to do that after Rob talks. Is there anybody that has specific questions that they need answered tonight? Problems that people are looking for? So I'll throw one out. I'm looking for land to build on infill in the mid-Missoula area. If you have land or you know somebody that does that either wants to sell or partner, I'm open to that conversation. Um, anybody else? All right. Well, with that, I will go ahead and introduce Rob Erickson. Rob, you've been an attorney for 20 years now, um, specializing in real estate. So he's going to talk a little bit about structuring uh, your portfolio and the entities you talk about for both protection and as well as profit. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'll let you introduce yourself. I won't steal your thunder and we'll go from there. Thanks. Appreciate it. Well, thanks, everybody. Thanks for coming out. Thanks for braving the weather. Uh, it's probably the worst weather we've had. I shouldn't say that. The weather's been lousy for months, but thanks for coming out. Um, and thanks for the introduction. Again, I'm Rob Erickson. Um, I'll introduce myself a little in a little more detail and tell you a little bit about my background in a minute. But I should tell you what I'm going to talk about tonight because it's not quite what was on the website. That's my fault, not Keith's fault. I gave him a, some general ideas about what I could talk about. He took one and put it on the website, and then I didn't really think about it until a week ago. So here goes. Um, I'll tell you what I am going to talk about tonight. Um, I've been practicing for about 20 years, and I get this question all the time. Do I need a lawyer? I mean, it, it, it happens to me multiple times a week. Do I need a lawyer? Well, you guys don't care about whether somebody's going to jail or not. You care about real estate. So I'll talk about tonight about some common scenarios, really the basic scenarios, some of the basic transactions where you might consider whether or not you should hire a lawyer. Um, there are times in particular deals, but definitely you should. Yes, there are other times where probably not as important and we'll kind of sift through that. Um, this is not syndication like Jesse was talking about last week. For syndication, you need a lawyer, you need lots of lawyers. So that's not this. This is, I'm not going to talk about highly complicated deals because you know you need a lawyer for that. We're going to try to break it down to a little more basic, the simpler transactions. Not because you need to decide whether you need a lawyer or not, but you need to think about what are the considerations that you might be thinking about when you need to hire a lawyer or another professional. Um, spoiler alert. A lot of the scenarios or... Uh, transactions or associations that I'm talking about, I'm going to tell you, you need a lawyer. I set up the scenarios, so I set up the answers, so that's the way it's going to work. Um, yeah, wh wh what do you know? <laughs> but you might know the answer to the question already, but I hope that I can explain to you why and what you should be thinking about along those lines and why you would consider hiring a lawyer at that time, the reasons and the risk involved for those particular things. Um, Bigger spoiler alert. I'm not going to give any legal advice tonight. <laughs> I can't. I don't know your situations. I don't know the facts, so I couldn't give you a good opinion, even if I wanted to. But I will say this. If you feel like 
you need to talk to a lawyer or you have a question for a lawyer, do it. Pick up the phone, get a hold of somebody. Most lawyers worth their salt are going to figure out first and foremost, do you need a lawyer? Or should you do something else before you talk to a lawyer? Or did you need a lawyer a month ago? Most people will give you that advice. Don't hesitate to ask for it. Um, I'm going to depend on all you guys a lot tonight. So I'm going to set up some things that I'm going to ask you, do you need a lawyer? And I want folks to answer. Don't, don't make me call on you. I don't want to, but I want to hear your advice. Some of you have lots of real estate experience, a lots of investment experience. Some of you, not so much. I'd love to hear from the more experienced folks. They can really help out, talk about their experiences and things that they've faced along these lines. Um, I'll tell you just a little bit about myself. Uh, again, I'm Rob Erickson. I work at Rhodes and Erickson. I'm the Erickson part of that. Uh, born and raised in Montana, northeastern Montana. I'm a proud Grizzly, graduated from U of M in the mid-90s with a degree in business, a uh, degree in political science. I moved to Portland, Oregon, worked in business. Uh, my first job was working at a, a large national manufacturer, and I was the most junior person in the human resources department, and they were embarking on massive layoffs, which I got to handle. That's not a good job. That w was no fun at all. I found out that layoffs was, handling layoffs was something I didn't care for. So I ended up in the suburbs of Portland uh, running a brewery and a restaurant. It turns out beer was something that I did care for, um, and it worked out pretty well, a little bit. Uh, and, and it was fantastic. Um, I, 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 if you're a real estate investor, you're also running a small business. Um, everybody's a small business owner. Some of you are big business owners. I really would encourage you to take the opportunity to also read business books if you're a real estate investor. It's amazing how much, uh, how many parallels there are between a small business, let's say it's a restaurant or retail, versus real estate investing. The, the basics are still the same. Buy low, sell high, minimize your expenses. Um, you, you can't go wrong with that uh, foundation. I learned a lot running a bar and a restaurant, things that still help me even today. Uh, I outgrew that particular itch though, um, and in the year 2000, I started law school at Tulane Law School in New Orleans. New Orleans, great place to study. It's Mardi Gras today. It's okay to be out having beer on a weeknight. It's Mardi Gras. <laughs> buck, buck stops tomorrow, I suppose. Um, in law school, um, uh, I did a number of things in law school. One thing that I'm proud of was being an editor of the Environmental Law Journal and getting an environmental certificate as well. Um, I don't practice much environmental law these days. I kind of find that unfortunate, but that background also has been awfully helpful certain times. Um, I graduated from Tulane Law with my Juris Doctor with honors in 2003, and then I moved to New Mexico. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you why I was in Portland, then New Orleans, then New Mexico, and back to Montana. If you want the long story, right now is the short story. I started my law practice in Albuquerque at a boutique law firm. We did primarily commercial litigation. A large focus of that, one component of that was uh, real estate litigation. Uh, we worked for, um, in addition to individuals and businesses and developers, we worked for national and local banks, primarily enforcing their loans. That means foreclosures. Um, in New Mexico, there are no non-judicial foreclosures. Every foreclosure requires a lawyer and a court. 
a sheriff's deputy to handle the foreclosure. So that's a business in New Mexico that really doesn't exist in Montana. Most foreclosures in Montana don't have to have a lawyer involved in all. Sometimes there are lawyers involved, but oftentimes it's just a trustee. doesn't have to be a lawyer. Uh, we also represented uh, uh, lenders when they made their underwriting decisions for real estate loans. So we would consult with them if there were issues with the property, perhaps title issues or easement issues. They want to make sure that they're going to have a performing loan. That means that they want to have a client who has a performing piece of real estate. And so we would help sort through, the, through those issues and really advise banks about whether they should make loans. Is this loan too risky with this particular property? Uh, they want to make the loan, but they don't want to pick up the risk. We also represented development clients and neighborhood associations on both sides of development. I represented developers for development. I represented neighborhood associations against development, two sides of the same coin. 14 years ago, uh, I moved back to Missoula, uh, greatest place on earth. Um, certainly haven't regretted it. I began work at a, a medium-sized firm in Missoula. It was uh, a mostly real estate firm. There were eight lawyers there. Four of them did only transactional work, business and real estate. Four of the rest of us did litigation, but it was primarily real estate litigation and business litigation. litigation the two things sort of went together. That was a great learning experience for me, particularly with respect to real estate. Um, working with just transactional lawyers is, is really awesome. You learn a lot, especially if they have a lot of experience. I had a couple of great mentors at that firm, um, one of which I'll just mention because I saw him on the street today. Uh, Zane Sullivan was a fine lawyer and a fine realtor. He trained me and I really appreciate it. He's still practicing. If you're a real estate agent, odds are pretty good that you've taken one of Zane's seminars. He does them all over Montana. Um, right now, my practice has sort of evolved. Um, it was almost exclusively litigation where I began, and over time, it's, it's changed. It's a lot less litigation, probably less than half now, and the other half is transactional, and really just a lot of business and real estate consulting as well. Before, it used to be clients would come to me when they need to file a lawsuit, or they've been sued. Now a lot of what I do is, hey, let's figure out how you're not going to have to need to file a lawsuit anymore or how you're not going to get sued anymore. That sort of ounce of prevention philosophy, that's a lot of what I do now. Um, and also advise about real estate deals, uh, sales, easements, um, gosh, options, you name it. I, I kind of do it all. Uh, most real estate lawyers do. Those kind of transactions... Um, Every, everyone is different, that's true, but there are some commonalities between all of them and there's nothing like experience to get your documents together if you're doing a complicated transaction or even a, a simple transaction. Um, and then finally, of course, we litigate matters when things go awry. Um, so that's me in a nutshell. Um, what I like to say to people is that my litigation background has well informed my transactional background. So what do I mean by that? Well, I've seen a lot of mistakes and I've seen a lot of errors and I've seen what happens when folks don't do the right thing or when folks are less than honest. And then you see how that shakes out. That informs how you can structure a deal or paper a deal, put the documents together to avoid some of those pitfalls. To avoid those pitfalls as best you can, as much as a contract can do that. You're still gonna be dependent on people to do the right thing, but seeing those things and really when things go bad helps me, I think, advise my clients about how to make them go good so they don't ever get in that situation. So tonight I'm, I'm going to just 
really for the purpose of structure, call out some scenarios, describe a scenario. And I'm going to ask the group, do you need to hire a lawyer or not? And I, I hope that you'll give me some answers. Um, just for purposes of ease of, of talking about it, we're going to talk primarily from the buyer's perspective. It's just easier that way. That's where you start with real estate. You got to buy something first. Um, I'll mention a few things from the seller's perspective when it makes sense. But most of the scenarios that I'm going to set up are from the buyer's perspective, just, just so you know what I'm doing. And what we're going to talk about tonight is scenarios under a couple of different categories uh, of things that buyers think about sellers think about too, um, but I'll, I'll try to break it down into these categories. Um, who pays and how? Who owns and who controls? And who gets what when you sell? Those two last things kind of go together. I'm going to spend a fair bit of time, um, and, and I promise to be relatively short tonight. I already did, did that, so if I go long, just give me that and we'll be done. But I'm going to spend a fair bit of time on the first part of it, um, who pays and how, how to structure a deal, how to get the money in, because it touches on some of the other things and then we'll kind of go rapidly after that. Um, so let's talk about the, the most basic of real estate transaction that there could be. Uh, somebody's got cash, nice place to be in. They're not going to a bank. Uh, they hire a real estate agent to find them an investment property their real estate agent finds them that property, brings them that property, and says, this is a good one, this is exactly what you said you wanted, and that buyer is ready to make an offer. Should that buyer, at that point, consult with a lawyer? No. Anybody? No, no. no. Andrea, why not? I would assume that the realtor has got, that in the, performing their duties, also, just from my own experience, it was a question I had for you. Um, when I bought my property, I didn't use a realtor, mm -hmm. but I did hire a lawyer to mm -hmm. review the contract. Yep. So I feel like it's either a realtor or a lawyer. Mm. In situation. You should be up here. But is that? I'm, I'm going to. I'm going to say that. So. Perform in that role. Correct? Yeah, that's right. So what Andrea said is that under my scenario where you've got a straightforward cash transaction, a real estate agent involved, you don't foresee any problems. Do you need a lawyer? The answer is probably not. Most people wouldn't use a lawyer in that circumstance. Um, if they needed technical advice about how a real estate transaction works, a buy-sell or something like that, sure, consult with a lawyer. But your general run-of-the-mill transaction, like I've described it, nah, you don't, you don't need a lawyer for that. You've got a real estate agent. That's what they're supposed to do, right? So let me give you that, that same scenario, cash deal, right? Um, you've got a realtor. They found you the perfect spot let's say you get a little further in the transaction you've made an offer it's been accepted you're under contract uh, and then you get the title commitment back and it says lack of access or, or more accurately your preliminary title commitment says we are going to accept legal access from the insurance policy that we're going to issue for, for this property should you hire a lawyer yes Absolutely. So I had another middle range scenario, which was, oh, there's an, an easement on your property. Probably don't need a lawyer for that, depending. But access is a big one. If you discover while you're under contract that the property you're about to invest in suffers from a lack of legal access, or at least the title company perceives it that way, you got to be really careful about that. That's when you'd want to talk to a, a lawyer, uh, a real estate expert or both, um, and figure out if you still want to be in this deal. 
accesses everything um, without legal access. You don't know whether you can develop or do anything on that property or not. The answer is probably not. But you can work with a lawyer and find out, well, is there a way I can save this deal? Is there an alternative to the access that I thought I might have had? Or what's it going to take for me to get legal access? And is that going to be worth my while to do it? And do I want to take on that risk? Those are things that a lawyer could really help you with under those circumstances. Any questions about that so far? Yeah. Wouldn't the title company help with that, though, too? Sure. Well, in my scenario, the title company is saying, here's what we're going to insure over, and what they're telegraphing to you is that we don't see that there's an easement for access here, or we don't see that there's a way to get to a public no. road. No existing access. And so, sure, I've had folks that have come to me and said, man, they're not going to insure over access. I think they're wrong. I think we got it here because of this and this and this. And I've had one occasion a title company that was wrong and we worked with them and they said actually you've convinced us we met with our underwriters we will ensure our access save the deal um, so yeah you can work with them on that it's a Yeah. Yep. That, that's exactly right. And and sometimes it's well, there's alternate access that you forgot about. More often than not, it's going out and buying an easement. Right? Can I save this deal with no access by buying an easement from the neighbor? Money talks. Sometimes you can. Sometimes you can't. Um, so yes, ma'am. The title companies have title attorneys as well, or is that something separate? Title insurance companies have lots of attorneys. Yes. So you could go through the title company and use their title attorney. As well? well, no, the, the, Are they separate? they're separate. Yeah, they, they won't do anything for you because they represent only the title insurance company. So the title attorney is separate than the title company itself. But they're only for when we mess up. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. Okay. That, that's about right. I heard that. I yeah. Sure. Okay. It's very confusing. Okay, let me give you a, another scenario. We'll stick with cash deal for a while. Um, but you don't have a real estate agent. Sound familiar? Um, this is sort of an unlikely scenario, but the other guy does, right? Okay, and so you're trying to buy, you wanna make a cash offer on this. You don't have a real estate agent. Should you hire a lawyer? Yes. Yeah, I, I think so. I think you might also consider hiring a real estate agent because you're, you're the buyer and the seller is going to pay your real estate agent through the commission that's going to be split with your agent so no money's going to come out of your pocket why not hire a real estate agent to guide you through that deal that's a consideration you have to make on your own but boy something you might consider if you don't do that though and you truly don't have a real estate agent and no desire to have one sure i would say hire a lawyer in that scenario because you're going to want somebody to either a prepare the documents if, if the other side's not doing it or certainly to review them and you won't have a real estate agent in my scenario to do that for you so you should have somebody else and that generally would be a lawyer under that circumstance so let's i'll give you a sort of the the, the most common circumstance uh that i get involved in um in terms of uh buy buy sells and real estate transactions. So you're kind of going to know the answer when I ask you, sh should you hire a lawyer? Um, so I'm changing the scenario. It's a cash deal, but nobody's got a real estate agent. So let's, uh, this happens a lot. Let's say you've got an investment property here. Your neighbor has an investment property. You want to buy it from 
neighbor X. You like neighbor X, you get along smashingly, you're great friends, but neither one of you wants to pay a real estate commission or otherwise doesn't want to go to um, uh, a real estate agent for whatever reason, but you guys want to make this transaction. Should you hire a lawyer? Yes. Yeah, almost, almost certainly in that circumstance. Um, and I'm not going to uh, do any marketing for price, but a lot, of, a lot of folks will come to me in that scenario and say, listen, my neighbor and I, we've reached terms, or at least the basic terms, price and timing and that sort of thing. We're going to flush out the rest, but uh, can you put this deal together for us? Can you write up the paperwork? Yeah, uh, you might consider hiring a real estate agent too if you want to. And they say, but gosh, you know, five or 6% of, $500,000 is a lot of money. How much do you think it's going to take for you to do it? Well, I'm going to need a lot more information than that. Is this complicated? Is, is there, are we going to have to draft a bunch of additional paperwork easements um, after the fact documents? I'll find out and give an estimate. But if it's truly a simple deal, if it's uh, what we're going to do is basically a buy sell and then we're going to do a deed at the end and not much in between that, oftentimes you can save a lot, a lot of money by hiring a lawyer as opposed to a real estate agent. Every deal is different, so evaluate that as you move forward. Um, but why would you hire a lawyer in that circumstance? One is because you need the paperwork. The realtor or a lawyer to prepare the paperwork, you're going to need that anyway. So why do you need a buy-sell? Anybody? Yeah. What, what other reason? Disputes. Disputes. To have a record and to know the details of what, what the purchase is, exactly. To get a loan. To get a loan. Title company won't close it without it. All great ideas, and I think you exhausted my list. Um, if you have a handshake deal about real estate, how enforceable is that? Zero percent, uh, unless, there's exceptions to everything, unless there are a lot of other things that fall into place. But generally speaking, you got to have a real estate deal in writing a great point is your title company is not going to close that transaction unless they see a buy sell because that's where they get all their information. That's how they prepare their closing statement. Plus they want to know both parties are going to show up and do this deal before they do a bunch of legwork in between it. But I'll say this too about buy sells, contracts, uh, operating agreements for LLCs, shareholders agreements for corporations, all those things, whatever kind of contract it is, one thing it is, is a great communication tool, right? You're telling somebody else, here's exactly what I expect. They're telling you, here's what I exactly, exactly I expect. And here are the details that are critical to get us through this. You can't do that on the back of a bar napkin. Um, and you can sort out a lot of problems, either solve them during the negotiating or drafting, or avoid them altogether on the back end, problems that you may never know about, by going through that process, by committing it to writing up front, getting all the details, getting good advice about that, inking it, signing on the dotted line, and then if you've done it right, if you've thought about all the things and gotten good advice, and everybody does what they're supposed to, not everybody does, then the deal should go smoothly. Great communication tool, great way to avoid problems before they arise. Colin. Can you suggest uh, two lawyers in that scenario? Sure, absolutely. Um, here, here's the way I would almost always do that. There have been times where I've worked both sides of the transaction. I don't like to do that. I do it basically exclusively when it's close family members, um, farms and ranches type scenario. 
what I would prefer and what I would recommend in that scenario is one lawyer is going to have to write it up. Somebody else is going to have to review it. Um, so it doesn't mean two lawyers have to do all the work. One's going to do the bulk of the work. One's going to do some else work, but everybody needs somebody to represent them. Yeah. Questions. Um, also you need a deed. Somebody has got to write up a deed too. Um, Deeds need not be complicated, but they are technical. What you want is a warranty deed uh, backed by title insurance. If you do have title insurance, everybody should be comfortable giving you a warranty deed. And then you're covered by the, I won't bore you with the details, the six warranties implied in that deed. Um, so if somebody, for example, makes a claim to your property and says, uh, you don't own that property or you don't own all of it. I own a, a piece of your property. Well, you got two lines of defense if you've done it right. One is you get title insurance. You just submit it to title insurance. They got to defend your title or pay your damages, one or the other. Also, you've got those warranties from your seller that says, I promise to defend your title against everybody because i that's why I gave you my warranty deed. So you've got two lines of recourse. Again, if you don't have those things technically in place, um, if everything goes south, then you may have some issues. Um, let's, that's sort of purchases from the buyer's perspective. I want to talk just a little bit about financing from uh, the buyers and, and really the seller's perspective too. Um, I'll run through this sort of quickly, but um, let's say you want to buy an investment property. You don't have the money in the bank, but you got a rich uncle and he wants to loan you the money, but he's no dummy. He didn't get rich by making careless decisions. He wants to lean on the property. Um, but he's more than willing to loan you the money. Um, do you need a lawyer? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you do. Uh, you know who really needs a lawyer? Your uncle. <laughs> because, and so that's from the, the uh, lender's perspective or uh, seller financing perspective. They really need a lawyer because they're the ones taking the big risk. They're giving away their property. I should say selling their property, but they're also putting their money at jeopardy in jeopardy too, if it's seller financing or your rich uncle financing. So that person really needs a lawyer, really needs good advice. Well, boy, you want to be secured in, in your property. You want to make sure you have a lien on that property. You better do it right. And then you, who's getting the benefit of that, your uncle and your uncle's lawyer is not going to try to screw you, but you want to know exactly what you're getting into. And you need somebody to explain that to you. Even if it's just reviewing the paperwork that uncle's lawyer prepared, maybe that might takes a lawyer an hour. Maybe it takes them two. But if you're talking about a quarter of a million or a $500,000 deal, 500 bucks of legal advice can really go a long way under those circumstances. Um, sort of the same thing with seller financing. When I, when I say seller financing, I mean you're buying from a seller and the seller in some fashion or another is going to carry the paper. Either they're going to lend you the money as if they were a bank and have a lien on the property, or they're going to sell it to you under a contract. So let's say you're buying property, um, no real estate agents in this scenario. You're buying property from somebody who says, hey, I'll carry the paper. I'll do seller financing. Do you need a lawyer? Yeah, you do. You know who really needs a lawyer? That seller doing the seller financing, but you do too. Um, that's particularly important because... You need to know not only what's going to happen when, when you hit a home run with this investment property and rent it out and, and make a bundle of money or sell it at a huge profit. That's awesome. You don't have to worry too much if you're in that scenario. But you also have to know what happens if things go south. I mean, 
people say, well, gosh, I wouldn't have bought it if I didn't think I could pay for it. But things happen. You might get sick. You might die. You might not be able to work. The parade of horribles, they do happen. And you want to know what's going to happen to this property if I'm not able to do my part, if I'm not able to, to pay the difference. And so there's a couple of different seller financing ways that, that you would do well to talk to a lawyer about, see what's being proposed to you. But is it, for example, a traditional note and mortgage or a note and trust indenture, as we say in Montana? Or is this a contract for deed, sold under a contract for deed? Those are two big differences. Who's going to tell me the difference? Colin. One, the seller can take the property right away. Yeah, that, that's that's essentially it. I don't know if you heard what Colin said, but under a contract for deed, if you're truly in default, usually there's a couple of steps to get there. But if you're there, contract is terminated. That property is not yours. It never was. And the seller goes right back and takes it. And if you, you don't leave, they go to court and get a court or evict you just like you were, um, you know, a month to month tenant. Um, whereas in a, a traditional I shouldn't call it traditional because we're talking about private financing, but in a note and trust indenture, a note and a lien um, in Montana scenario, they have to go through a foreclosure. It means you're going to get plenty of warning of that. doesn't necessarily have to be in court. Most foreclosures in Montana are non-judicial, but you have the opportunity at any time during that to go back and pay the deficiency and put things back in good standing. That's a big deal. More importantly than that, although this doesn't happen very often because the economics would have to be just right to do it, um, what is really critical is who gets what if this property is sold at a foreclosure sale. And let's say there's some gravy. So let me give you the hypothetical. It's a weird hypothetical. You own a million dollar property. You've got $900,000 in equity in it. You only owe $100,000, but for some reason, something terrible happens to you and you're not going to be able to service the rest of that debt. It goes into foreclosure um, and it is actually foreclosed. Well, somebody's going to actually buy that property. This is not a property where the bank's going to credit bid. Somebody's going to go in and maybe they'll pay half a million dollars. They did that. They're still picking up $400,000 in equity. So someone's going to bid more than that $100,000 debt. The question is, what happens to that money? The gravy, right? So let's say somebody does bid $400,000. In my scenario, there's no transaction costs. The debt's $100,000. So there's $400,000 le left over. Who gets that money? Well, you do. The buyer. Well, well the, the, the owner. Yeah, the, the former owner. Yeah. The buyer, the former owner. Exactly right. That's your money. It's your equity. You built it up. But in a contract for deed scenario, you forfeit that. You, you never had any equity, even though you might have made the same amount of payments over a long period of time, you forfeit it. Well, that's no good. So those are two really fundamentally different ways of structuring seller financing. You may not be able to dictate the terms of that. Your seller might say, I'm willing to do this, but not this. But you darn sure better know the implications of what you're getting into and, and get some good advice and somebody to review the paper, if not draft it for you. Sure, sure. I mean, some sellers will, will do it no other way, right? Uh, now, I mean, maybe. There's a lot of things that could, could go into that, but um, it could be for personal tax reasons. I could see why they would want to do that. Um, it might be to uh, structure the deal differently where they could 
draw it out over a longer or shorter period of time. There are reasons for that, sure. But generally speaking, a seller would prefer a contract and the buyer would prefer the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great point. Um, okay, questions about anything so far? I'm going to kind of run through the rest of this quickly. You guys have been great. Um, but there are a couple of highlights about sort of ownership and control. Um, we've talked about how to buy it, how to finance it. Let's talk about when you got it uh, or when you're going to have it. Um, who's going to own it, who's going to control it, and who's going to get what. All those things kind of roll together. Um, so here's your scenario. You're the sole owner um, or, or going to be the sole owner. Do you need a lawyer to tell you how to manage your own property? Nah. No, you're in charge. You're the boss. You don't have any partners. You don't have to worry about that. No reason to hire a lawyer for that. But what if you're going into an investment with two or more owners? Let's say it's you and a buddy, or let's say it's uh, one couple and another couple, two couples, four people total. Uh, you're going to invest in investment property, and your goal is to sell that property at some point for a profit. So you might be building something on it, you might just flip it, but at some point your goal is to gain a profit on that and you've got at least one more person involved in the deal. Should you talk to a lawyer? Yes, yes always. Um, most of the real estate litigation and business litigation we do um, is when uh, e either somebody on either side of the transaction hasn't performed or when people on the same side of the transaction partners or co-members or something like that can't get along or not quite honest or something like that. Um, it happens a lot where folks with the best of intentions and the best partners too get into a scenario that's not working anymore. And it doesn't mean somebody's dishonest or something like that. It might mean a divorce. It might mean somebody moves. It might mean somebody wants to get out of the deal. It might mean somebody dies, but you better be prepared for those things to happen because they can happen tomorrow sometimes. So if everything's equal, I will say this about uh, partnerships. And I, I, I use that word advisedly because I'm going to tell you why I don't like general partnerships uh, in a moment. Um, but if it's equal work, equal people, you all put in the same thing, you get along 100% of the time. And all throughout the deal, including on the back end when you're making your money, everybody gets along 100% of the time and never has a disagreement. Yeah, that'll work. It'll work without much uh, of an agreement um, in writing, but that hypothetical is that everything worked out 100% of the time, including on the back end. That almost never happens. Things are almost never equal. Um, things are almost have a little bit more work. Things are almost always structured a little bit differently. I'm going to do this thing. You're going to do this thing. We're going to combine together and make this bigger thing. There's almost always an element of that. And so instead of being what you would be under that scenario is a general partnership. The law imposes that structure upon you, whether you want it or not. If you're going into business with somebody else with the intention of making a profit, you're in a general partnership. The law will 
determine for you how that's going to work because you haven't decided it for yourself. Um, a, a few highlights of that uh, that people really don't like. One is, let's say you don't have an agreement about this, and I'm going to tell you in a minute why you should have an agreement or why that's so important. But let's say you didn't, and two people bought a piece of property, they own it together with the intention of selling it and making a profit, but one guy puts in $100,000, one guy puts in a million dollars, and they sell it for $1.5 million. So the gravy, the profit, no transaction cost is $400,000. Again, one guy put in a million, one guy put in $100,000. We got a $400,000 profit. Who gets what? 50-50. Yeah, 50-50. So one guy takes 10 times the risk, but because you haven't planned very well, the law says you get to split the profits equally. If it works out, guess what? You also get to split the losses equally if it works out too. Now, I will say this, the, the guy, you always get your investment back in a partnership, what you put into it to the extent there's money left to get it. So you get that off the top, but profits are split equally even if the partners are really unequal. So don't do that. Don't let the law impose the way things are going to work when in fact you probably don't want them to work out that way. No. Well, I will say this. Partners can always agree. You can always make another deal as long as, you know, well, I guess we didn't really talk about how we were going to share the profits. Well, it makes sense that I should get 90% of it. You should get 10%. Okay. That's, that's kind of what I was thinking too. That sounds good. You can always shake hands on that, right? But in the event that you can't agree, the law will impose that, that remedy for you. Yeah. Oh. Or from, uh, Pardon me. No agreement and death on, on the yeah, exactly. Lousy. Uh, everything goes to the other partner, not his wife. No, no, no. no. Every, everything goes to the wife. <laughs> I mean, well, half, right? So, or the husband. Or the husband. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was thinking for my. No, that's right. Uh, but but that's exa but that's exactly right. And I'll tell you what, Colin, that, that's not a concern just for uh, general partnerships. So I'm not talking about limited partnerships or limited liability partnerships or limited by the, limited liability, limited partnerships. I mean, just general partnerships under the law. Well, that's a concern too if you're in an LLC. If you've got co-members too, you want to know what happens if one of them dies. And so if you have a well-written LLC operating agreement, you know exactly what happens when you die or somebody else dies. There's no mystery in it. If you don't have that written in the operating agreement, same thing happens. You might end up being unwitting partners or co-members in an LLC or own co-owners in a corporation, uh, shareholders, that somebody that you never really wanted to be with unless you have good agreements up front. Um, it kind of reminds me of another lawyer. He said like his worst nightmare is family cabin. Oh, the worst. Yeah. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely the worst, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna file a lawsuit about one in two weeks. Same same thing. I mean, it's just absolutely gonna happen. So how do you avoid that? How do you avoid the law imposing upon you a structure or a remedy or a result that you don't want? Plan well, hire a lawyer, sure. Um, and you don't necessarily need a lawyer for that, although that's uh, a lot of what what they do. Um, so form an entity, right? Um, I say entity. What does that mean? It means uh, an organization recognized by the Secretary of State uh, that is an association generally designed for business, for real estate. Uh, what you generally see are general corporations, something that ends with Inc. or Co. Uh, you see 
limited partnerships of, of a wide stripe, limited partnerships, limited liability partnerships, limited liability, limited partnerships. Won't bore you with all those details. And then, of course, LLCs. Um, LLCs are very popular. They have been, I mean, LLCs, unlike general corporations, haven't been around that long. Instead of 500 years, it's been, I don't know, 30 years or something like that. But they're so much easier to use. They're so much easier to understand. The maintenance and the cost is so low that it's a really great vehicle for really small and large investors. If it's a massive deal, an LLC probably is not the right vehicle. If you've got uh, a lot of subscribers, you want to uh, sell this to a lot of people, LLC is probably not the right vehicle. But boy, by and large for local transactions, if you're uh, buying rental houses or you got a fourplex or something like that, LLC is generally the right vehicle. But talk to a lawyer about it. There might be a reason to have it in a, in a different fashion or another. Um, so that's ownership. But I also want to talk a little bit about ownership in the context of control. So it's one thing to own the property. It's another thing to control the property. If you're a sole owner, they're the same thing. If you're in another circumstance, that could be quite different. So um, again, that the, the worst possible scenario, you're in a, a general partnership, the default, because you didn't plan about it, because you didn't think about it. Um, who makes the decisions? Well, it's majority rules for partners. So if you have two partners, that means it's got to be unanimous. So one guy wants to do one thing, one guy wants to do the other thing. You guys are at loggerheads. You're done. You're stuck. The only way you're going to fix that is to go to court. Also, not a great way to do that. Um, uh, if you're in an entity, though, it might be a corporation. Let's, let's say it's an LLC because that's the easiest to explain. You can account for that. Not only who owns it, you'll know that. Who are the members? What percentages do they own? But also who controls it? Who's calling the shots here? Is it one person? Does one person have more votes because you want them to have more votes because they invested more or because they have a larger ownership interest or because they have more expertise? Do you want to have the members manage that together and have equal votes um, because they get along so well uh, and, and, and we know they can do that? Or do you want to hire a manager to do this? Do you want the members to be in control of the manager? Or do you want the members to say, we're going to designate a manager and we don't have, want to have much to do with it after that. Uh, we don't want to have much control because there's a financial incentive for us to do other things that make more money than, than this sort of passive thing. So you can structure those things in a lot of different ways. The key is to know what you want to do and get advice about what you want to do and then do it. Uh, the last part's really important. you got to commit it to writing to do it. And again, that process, an operating agreement or a shareholder's agreement, drafting and consulting, a lot of communication goes on during that, and that's really critical as well. Um, and then finally, who gets what at the end of the deal? Well, guess what? If, if you don't know that going into the deal, you're going to have a really hard time solving it at the back end of the deal. Let's say things are a smashing success that you make way more money on this deal than you thought you were going to make. That's even harder to figure out who gets what than the deal where it's not quite as good and there's a really small pie. Harder to divvy up the big pie without a plan than the small one, surprisingly enough. So again, have a plan up front. Put it in your entity agreements. Put it in your LLC operating agreement. Put it in a shareholder's agreement or just a contract, just a regular old contract. If everything goes well and everybody does what they're supposed to and we make money on this deal, who gets what? When do they get it? How do they get it? All those things. 
talk about it upfront in advance, consult with an attorney, figure out about it, communicate about it. Uh, so that's sort of my two cents, I guess. Um, who, who owns it? How do you own it? How do you control it? How do you manage it? And who gets what? If you've got questions about those at any time during the real estate process, that's probably when you need to hire a lawyer or at least consult with a lawyer. And like I said earlier, you may not know whether you need to hire a lawyer, but if you think, boy, there's something there about the ownership of this that I can't quite figure out or don't know or the control or how this is going to work, call up a lawyer and find out. They, the answer might be really simple and most lawyers will say, ah, you know, just, you know, read it, read it. And that's how it works. Or they might say, I'm going to need a while to dot to dive into this and study the facts and give you an opinion and that's going to be really expensive. Do you want to do that? Make up your mind about that. Or if it's just documents, I'll be happy to review those financing documents for you. Send them to me. I'll give you an estimate of how long I think it might take and how long it might take to consult with you. And I can usually figure out if we're going to have to do something else too. Yeah, you got the basics here, but we better write up an easement or something like that. Um, talk to a lawyer early and often and if they tell you, you probably don't need a lawyer for that, awesome. You're going to sleep really well that night when you did that. But also if they say, I'm going to charge you a few bucks or a lot of bucks, and you get great advice, you're going to sleep well because of that too. So that's my, my spiel. Any questions? Yes, sir. Um, I, I, it's a little late, so I don't know if you touched on it or talked about it all. So from a financing perspective, do you advise on Deal with creative financing at all? Sure. And more specifically, like hybrid deals, subject to deals, you deal with those? Sure. Yep. Um, and I usually deal with it, and I, I shouldn't say as much anymore, but I mentioned uh, in New Mexico, we used to do that a lot for banks, for banks, for lenders, right? So they want to know that they're secured, and sometimes somebody's got a piece of real estate and they've got a trust and they've got uh, out of state. Uh, entity and they've got a few things. Well, the local bank wants to know, is the loan that I'm making secured? Is it going to perform? So yeah, lots of creative financing. And I, I was, I, I shouldn't say I do it much anymore, but I was interesting. I, I won't mention them by name, but there's a couple of local banks, smaller banks that were really aggressive lenders, particularly about 10 years ago. And they did exceptionally creative financing. And I loved consulting with them about that. It was very interesting. What about from a buyer's perspective? Let's say I wanted to Sure, exactly. The you're you're my rich uncle. No. That that was the rich uncle scenario, right? So, uh, and tell me if I've got it right though. Um, uh, somebody regular financing, but not from a bank. Is that what you're saying? Basically. Yeah, sure, absolutely. What? He's gonna pay his loan. Um, I'm assuming it. I don't want it in my name. Okay, Brady has a has a house. I buy it from Brady, but I'm just going to pay the loan. That's subject to it. Right? Sure. So I, but I don't want the loan in my name. Yep. We're going to keep it in his if you've got three percent interest rate. I sure. Yeah. If if the bank's cool with that, may or may not be. Uh, uh, write it write it up. Write it up just the way you explained it. We'd put it in more technical terms. But as long as you know what's going on, you know what's going on, and everybody's cool. It was probably a due-on-sale clause. Right. <laughs> well, what, why do they need to know? 
No, no. I mean, you don't have to tell the bank anything. But I'll. I've done it many times. But but if that happens to you, and everybody loses part of their investment, somebody's going to be pretty upset about that. And the way to avoid it is go talk to your bank, and and say, are you willing to do this or not? And they might say no. Then you might have to make a different decision. Sure. Go 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 talk. There's a way to talk to them. Have I asked bank whether, banks whether they will uh, uh, waive a due-on-sale clause? You bet, all the time. And, some, and you're right, sometimes they won't even give you a response, but that is a response. Not me. My, my client have. Sure. Well, th that may be, because I don't know what banks see all the time, but I know this, that I've had at least a dozen bank clients uh, say, we looked at the property record, this property has been transferred, go get it for us. Yeah. Any more questions for Rob? All right, how about a big round of applause? Thank you.